Hello and welcome to Music Speaks. This is the podcast dedicated to how music impacts people's lives. For our podcast, we usually have two co-hosts, the first of which is myself, uh, Hunter Sagona, I have to think about my own name, and the second is Sean Rimkunis, sitting on a very nice looking piece of furniture in the Zoom window on the screen in front of me. Uh, today on Music Speaks, we'll be talking with uh, fellow clarinetist, Sierra Solby, about ensemble music and teaching during the pandemic. So Sean, how do you know the guests for today? I know Ciara from Ithaca College when I went there for my, uh, she kind of like split over my time with my bachelor's and my master's, but I got to know her pretty well through her work as a clarinetist and work uh, as her sort of growing up and getting to know her a little bit through her playing. And uh, She's definitely one of those players who works really hard and gets the job done, if you know what I mean. She mm-hmm. just, you know, really works her tail off and practices so much and now she's getting her master's degree. And I'm just so excited to talk to her today. All right, very cool. And without further ado, let's welcome Sarah to our podcast. And we are on with Sierra. Welcome, Sierra. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Very excited to get to talk to you about a whole bunch of things today. Um, the first of which, which we'll start right off, is about playing in an ensemble, you know, in general and during a pandemic. So, yeah, because, you know, our lives are sort of dictated by the pandemic, the Rona. Um, and my first question is more of a general question, not dependent on, you know, plague, is what's your favorite type of ensemble to play in? Um, my personal favorite ensemble to play in is probably the Reed Quintet. Um, I played in Reed mm-hmm. Quintets all through undergrad. Um, I played bass and B-flat clarinet. I also was an intern with Acropolis for two years, um, and they're so awesome. And they just like fueled the fire more and inspired me more to love the Reed Quintet. Um, and I actually right now I'm doing a research paper on the Reed Quintet with all my own individual research. So. That's one of my favorite ensembles to play in, but really anything chamber music wise is definitely my absolute favorite. Mm-hmm. And for those listening who don't know, what may, which five instruments make up the reed, the reed quintet? Right, so the reed quintet is pretty new. It um, formed in the 1980s, so it's really mm-hmm. recent. Um, wow. Yeah, and the original group, Califax, they're actually still together and still playing, which I think is super neat. Um, but it's made up of a B-flat clarinet, oboe, bass clarinet, saxophone, and bassoon. Oh, that's a unique uh, variety of instruments. So many different colorations there. Uh, <laughs> so many different timbres. Um, and what is it that you like about that particular group of instruments the most? I think you get a really unique sound from the reed quintet. Um, it's a more homogenous sound than, say, a wind quintet. Um, wind quintet, you have your your flute and your French horn, which kind of stick out a little bit because they're not reed instruments. They don't. Right. They're wind instruments, but they're not reed instruments. So I just think it was a really great idea that somebody was like, hmm, let's put all these reed instruments together. Um, And what Califax actually wanted to do was just make the best possible sounding ensemble. Um, So I think that's really neat. Um, And they explore so many different 
timbres of all the different instruments. They use um, even like, you know, soprano sax, English horn, all those combinations. Um, I just think it, the sound that you can get is something really special. And I don't really get that feeling with a lot of other um, groups. Um, a lot of times you're compensating to match, say, string players in a certain way, or you're compensating to match, um, you know, a brass player but in this case it's really like we're all kind of struggling with the same things and <laughs> you get a really unique perspective it's a unique perspective on things for sure mm -hmm. and how were you introduced to this particular group of instruments like because you said it was a relatively recent uh formation of this style this quintet yeah, so I kind of stumbled upon it by accident. Um, when I was a freshman in college at Ithaca College, they came and did a chamber, Acropolis themselves came and did a chamber music performance. Oh. Um, and that was the first time I had heard a reed quintet. And um, I heard them play the opening bars of a piece called Splinter. And the beginning of the piece is just really like, it's just these long sustained chords. And it was just this sound that kind of captured me from the beginning um, and I was like I want to I don't know what they're doing and what that group is but I want to do that so um, and then I went around and I mm -hmm. played that piece the next year because I was like wow I love this and then you know the the love and the passion for the reed quintet kind of just spiraled from there so took off from there that's that's really cool I'd never heard of that piece before I wonder who wrote it Splinter was written by Mark Mellitz so um, oh, okay and it's a it's a eight movement, short eight movements, um, and kind of all based around different types of trees. It was commissioned by Splinter Reeds, who, you know, they're also another reed quintet. But that piece kind of, you know, kicked things off. But there's just so, there's so much great literature now. So it's kind of awesome to see how it's developed even over just the past four years or so. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's very cool. And, you know, like you said, there are developments over the years and um, lots of opportunities. Uh, I know that's something that Sean wants to ask you about, sort of like the the direction that ensembles are going in, in a way. So, Sean, take it away. Sure. So, Sierra, my next question is about recording projects, because I'm sure that's basically what most people are doing right now. Um, what are you, What are your opinions on some recording projects that are manageable for ensembles during this time? Yeah, so that's a really great question because I had to do a lot of recording projects. As much as I did play some in person, we had to figure out, in particular for the graduate wind quintet that I'm in, um, how what was a manageable thing to do for you know a group of dedicated musicians. Um, and it took us a long time to record just one movement of, of a wind quintet. Um, so things that we had to look for were things that kept a relatively steady tempo. Um, we had to, you know, pre-tune pre ourselves. And what we did, we wound up, um, originally we thought that if we recorded from the bassoon up, that would be logically, you know, you build an ensemble from the bottom up. So we thought that would be a good idea um, to start. But ultimately, once we recorded the whole, we did um, the first movement of a, of a Donzi wind quintet. Um, so we recorded the whole first movement and then we listened back to it. There were some spots where we were really off, even though we had a metronome and just, you know, the timbres weren't matching and it wasn't in tune, which is really difficult to do when you're not there in person with each other um, tuning. So um, we built some chords actually in, 
you know, just like a separate like little sound trap studio room. We're just like, okay, we're going to just build chords and get used to that and get used to our tuning. Um, so we did do that and that helped. Um, and as we recorded, we actually found that it helped for the clarinet to record first. And we think that's because the clarinet is often like the core of the ensemble and you can get a lot of, um, you know, a large group of clarinets is a really great core sound. But in this case, I was the closest thing to kind of every instrument, like every instrument could relate to me. I was playing most of the time. Um, so that was the biggest thing that we're like, wow, this is such a weird discovery. Like you would never think that, okay, like the middle voice should record first. Um, but it really helped with intonation and everything because, you know, the oboe player could listen to me and the bassoon player could listen to me. And for the most part, that was what we found to be most successful. And I think it's really important for groups to remember that we are, you know, in crazy times and that they should take small chunks at a time and try to get a really good quality small chunk and then build from that. Originally, we're like, we're going to record the whole first movement in one week, which we did, and it wasn't very good. So we went back and we broke it into chunks and we're like, okay, let's talk a little bit as a group about the exposition and what we want to portray in the exposition. Um, and then we went back and we recorded it in a different order and we recorded it again. And it's like a totally different group. Um, so I think it's really important to, you know, remember to take things slow and that everything is you know, we're learning as we go, which is the frustrating part, but also the rewarding part of it when you do get to the end and you have an end product of like, oh, this group sounds like we're actually playing together. Um, but yeah, I think just a lot of experimenting to see what works best for your group because you never know, like maybe the clarinet should record first and in a different situation, you would have a different instrument record first. Um, definitely messing around with stuff and don't be afraid to redo it until you get the result that you like for sure. Right, yeah. I like that response of you saying taking things slow wouldn't it be easier if everyone just took things slow and as those clocks do chime for hunter hunter's going to take over the next question which is going to be involved with ensemble playing versus playing in general sure we, we joke that those chimes are like our, our uh in-house sound effects they go off every 15 minutes um I don't know who makes a clock. I mean, old, you know, older clocks used to go off every 15 minutes. Why you'd need to know that, I have no idea, but I guess they wanted to know. Um, all right, so what do you think is something difficult about playing um, in general, meaning in a more orchestral setting versus playing in an ensemble? So for me, this year was one of the first times that I've had to play in orchestra and band. So in terms of those two different things, like they're actually very different. And I was kind of surprised, like as much as I'm, you know, I know my parts and my, I'm confident in my abilities, it was vastly different. Um, I was so comfortable in band. I've grown up in band and I played it all through college. So band was like, I'm used to that. And I, you know, I was like, I was enjoying it again, because I was used to it versus um, I actually had a lot of performance anxiety surrounding orchestra. Um, it's definitely super different um, playing in, you know, orchestra orchestral settings versus band settings band settings it's all about like blending and being you know a great section a really tight section whereas in orchestra it's like i just felt like i was hanging out there to dry most of the time like by myself i'm like uh 
there's like nobody else playing. Um, and the it's really interesting working with a wind director versus a like a director who's primarily a string player um, because he definitely had different expectations um, for me. Uh, things that, you know, he was like, you know, that should be really easy to like switch your clarinets in eight measures or that should be really easy for you to just make that, you know, going from a clarion B to an altissimo D. It could, should just be super easy and smooth, like the smoothest sounding thing. That's what he would like. He's like, I just want it to be really smooth. I'm like, he's like, just like you're shifting your hand position. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll work yeah, on that's it. That's not how it works. Yeah, no, I was like, that's not really how it works, but you know, I'll work on it. So um, definitely adjusting to the expectations and string players, when they move their bow, they kind of, they play instantly versus wind players. When you're getting the downbeat, that's when they want sound. So you can't react to the downbeat like in band. Um, so getting used to all these different things is super crazy. And then it's also crazier in a pandemic where um, because I'm playing in an ensemble and I have to have instrument PPE. I have a big like nylon bag over my clarinet that like completely covers it. Um, and I also had to wear a mask with a little flap on it for my clarinet. So like getting used to like having to like put my clarinet in my face like way before I normally would. Um, and getting used to having your hands in a bag and having like a sensation of something on top of them is super different. Um, a lot of the brass players, they just got like kind of bell covers, which I was a little jealous. I'm not going to lie, but we had, I had to like bag up. <laughs> You're like, hmm, so, that doesn't seem fair. Yeah. I had to bag up my whole instrument. Um, so yeah. And in terms of orchestral playing, I've really been struggling with having so much time to rest and think, um, thinking really mm -hmm. I'm kicking myself because when I think I am more likely to make a mistake than if I actually was just in the moment and listening to the music. So, you know, I would, I was playing a piece in band. I was, it was a Mozart octet and it was way harder, technically challenging, way easier for me to play than something super simple um, in orchestra. So I think that's a huge difference that you don't really realize until you get thrown in the middle of it. And then it is amplified when you have all the, you know, equipment challenges that I would present <laughs> this semester. I know exactly what you mean. The I feel like you you said it really well. You said like hanging it out to you know I'm hanging out to dry over here. Um, I you know I I've only played in a large orchestra a couple of times, and that's sort of how you feel as a wind player, right? Because in an orchestra, they want to hear the strings. The strings are the root or the the base of the sound. Um, and as a wind player, you're sort of like the ornamentation, and you're like, hi, I'm waiting to play my three notes over here, depending on you know, what you're playing, obviously, sometimes the wind, the featured solo, but I know what you mean, right? It's sort of off-putting, almost like you feel like you're exposed and standing out. Yeah, for sure. And like the beginning of the piece, it, you know, the piece, like I looked at it, it we were playing Wagner Siegfried Idol. So I was looking at ah. it, and, you know, beautiful piece, pretty, relatively simple, but very challenging because I would rest like the first 40 measures of the piece and then have to come in on a, you know, on a high C. So like, I'm like, um, how do I make that? How do I make that work? And making all those adjustments and transitions and changing instruments. But yeah, you really feel kind of like exposed out there, especially when the mm -hmm. string section was kind of pared down because of our like room restrictions and size restrictions. Um, they can play like so quiet. I know people are like the clarinet can play so quiet. I'm like, no, string players can play so quiet like please just really yeah give me a little yeah give me a little something to work with so yeah and having like the the modified section was definitely um 
it was something something to get used to. So, but yeah, definitely a completely different feeling and something I am yet to get used to, but I'm working on it. So, mm -hmm. one thing that you said, which uh, made me think back to what you said earlier, was where you said coming in on the high C. It's very obvious also when you're playing, not only working with a wind conductor versus an orchestral conductor, but when you're working with a wind composer, like a work by a wind composer versus a work by an orchestral composer, it's very obvious who does and does not know how to play each of the instruments. Like clearly they're writing for strings. You know what I mean? Just like you said, they expect you to come in on that high C and you're like, okay, well, you clearly don't know how or what it takes for us to start up there versus like the strings who you, you know you move your hand in and you bow it's pretty instantaneous provided you have the right technique but i always found it funny because like you look at some of the Sousa stuff that, that they want the winds to do high winds and you're like okay well he clearly didn't play uh, clarinet or flute yeah no for sure i see that we joke about that all the time we're like this person did not did not play our our instrument that is for sure mm -hmm. um and that's why when I look at the Mozart, I have more respect for like people who played back in the day because like I it's hard for me to play it on a normal like modern system clarinet and like this person who played it at the premiere was playing on like a five key clarinet like that's yeah. that's amazing. So um, yeah, definitely both perspectives. But I love looking at stuff and they're like my favorite is um, when Sousa likes to score the E flat clarinet and the piccolo in unison. I'm like that's a that was a not my favorite idea of his not gonna lie so i'm like it's just yeah, a horrible I really don't idea understand how these instruments work together because they don't so <laughs> they don't and not only that not only do not work well together but it's like you're struggling to keep the piccolo in tune with everyone else and now you want to do both in tune with everyone else good luck right exactly <laughs> um but it seems like you've had a lot of experience and that's something that sean now wants to ask you about Sure. Before we come to the next question, I have to ask here, because you did play Siegfried Idol, I actually played it um, my junior year at Ithaca College with the orchestra when I went to Lincoln Center, um, and the trumpet part is very, very small. Um, I wanted to ask you, did you happen to have a trumpet player with you when you played that piece? We did, and he played, what, 12 measures? I think it's 12 measures. <laughs> so we get, he goes, we get paid by the measure. And I was gonna, I was like, hmm, I wonder if Sean knows of that trumpet part. We did. He came to rehearsal, like, twice, and he goes, I really can't believe I'm here. But he's like, it's my, my 12 measures of fame, and then I'm out. Literally, like, during rehearsal, the director would be like, he would just wave to the back of the room and go, bye, and the trumpet player would just leave. Because he's like, your part sounds fine, so you can leave now. <laughs> but yes. We had a trumpet player, another grad student, who was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> That's remember, so funny. I remember playing it, and uh, we had these rehearsals where we, we do a lot of movement. And the director's like, well, how about you just walk in and walk out? <laughs> and I was like, that doesn't seem that fun. Like, I want to be in involved with the movement as much as I can. He's like, okay. And then when you have your moment, pop in, pop out. And I think that's exactly sort of what you were thinking about or with this piece. Um, very strange, but also very beautiful. But we don't have to get into Wagner if you don't want to because, you know, other things that he's involved with. But I do want to get involved with what you're talking about because what would be – we'd be talk, not talking about music if we wouldn't talk about music and experiences. Um, what is something that you've learned from this ensemble experiment of being away, being afar, not being up close, recording – what is that really going to add to your career? 
going forward? Yeah, I mean, I definitely had to expand my use of technology, which is something that I really just, I really not, I was kind of like, I don't really want to bother with it. But at this point, you have to. Um, And I think ultimately, it makes you a better teacher. So um, I actually have to teach class clarinet online. So I'm teaching people from the beginning, how to put the instrument together, how to play the clarinet. So that's been a huge challenge. Um, I've had them, you know, record videos for me. Ultimately, it's really difficult. Um, The way that the classes are structured at Western is you take a clarinet, flute, sax methods class is one semester. So I would have a group of like six or seven students for eight classes and I would have to get them, you know, up to a certain level of playing. And, you know, I, as a teacher, I just want, I don't want them to be, because some people were really naturally inclined to like just make a good clarinet sound and could do it. And some people are like, I I can hardly make any sound. Um, so having to work with both of those and not being able to do that in person where I can just be like, oh, you know, check your hand position or check, you know, this part of your embouchure looks a little strange. You miss so much over Zoom. Um, it's definitely challenged me to um, really hone in on, you know, how much I can use my ear to diagnose things versus how much, you know, I can diagnose by looking. Um, You know, the sound quality isn't always great over Zoom, as we know, I'm sure. Sound cuts out, you know, it likes to cut out the highs and lows of people's sound. And still having to teach with that um, Mm has been a challenge. I've also taught undergrad lessons where I've had to teach them um, all online. So it's been you know, interesting and, but you can still teach. My biggest thing is that you can still teach a lot of musicality, which I really like. You can definitely always teach musicality over the internet and you can even hear a difference, even though you're like, okay, maybe like Zoom is cutting out some of your really low dynamics and some of your high dynamics. You can play and teach that difference. And, you know, I've had people, I've had lessons where I've, you know, told them here, you should maybe try shaping the phrase like this and they would do it and they would be like oh my god like i can't believe that sounded so different and even on my end it sounded different so i think there's a lot that you still can teach over zoom that's like the biggest thing i was like ah this is rather difficult um also now having my own uh nice like microphone i find makes a really big difference when you're hearing yourself play um a big challenge also being so distant and so far is you really don't hear yourself in a nice setting at all like i haven't heard myself play in anything but like a dead carpeted room my office at the school which is you know really dead or even the recital hall i still had a bag on my clarinet and i was still playing with a face mask on so it's not the same as what we're used to and having to You know, I was talking to one of my friends and I was like, I think I'm plateauing. Like, I don't like the way I sound. She's like, when was the last time you heard yourself play in, you know, a good space? Just like without any PPE on or anything. And I was like, you know, you've got a really good point. And I think it's important to adjust our expectations accordingly um, that we might not be in love with our playing at this moment. Um, So I think you know, getting used to that and not always being able to, like when I was at Ithaca, I would just go and play in one of the really nice recital halls at night when nobody was there. Um, and that's not really an option now because they, they kind of, they, they lock down the building. They don't let students in after a certain time. Um, and they do that for our safety. So 
you know, I am all for following those rules, but it's really been tough as a musician to, you know, have to, especially in your masters where you're really focused on really putting a fine point on your playing and learning as much rep as possible. Um, it's hard to find the motivation when you don't really love the way you're sounding. Um, I find personally doing a lot of fundamental practice actually makes me feel really good and really um, gratified and satisfied with myself, which I always kind of liked my fundamentals, but I always liked, you know, everybody likes playing music. Like you like to play your rep. You like to go play Weber. You like to go play Mozart, whatever you choose. Like you like to go play that versus your fundamentals or something that I think we all just kind of glance over for the most part, or we like do it mindlessly. Whereas I found like in this time of distance that like really like sitting with myself and sitting with my sound until I find something in it that I really like has been a big thing that has helped me stay motivated to keep practicing and to, you know, keep wanting to strive for more and get better and do all that working on my reads to make them sound the best they can, which reads are different in Michigan than they are in New York. You wouldn't think, but they are. So (laughs) they change wherever you go. So, but yeah, so they change within the box. They change in the box. They change. Yeah. Like one day, the next day, totally different. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much, I know that's a lot of stuff in like one little question, but. Right. No, I think you really said it well. I think a lot of what we're all dealing with now is just change. Um, someone once said, I think maybe a few podcasts ago that dealing with the change is just dealing with time, you know, change is with time. We're not dealing with the pandemic. We're dealing with time and the way we're moving with time is the way we're sort of transitioning from one thing to another. And I think that's something that you've definitely showcased within talking to us today about the way you're moving forward and the way you're using technology that we didn't really even think that technology could be used. Um, And I have a question later to ask you about the process between, you know, playing and and, and playing online and what you think about that. But I do want to toss the next one over to Hunter because he has a two-parter for you that is about ensemble playing. Hunter, take it away. Sure. Um... You know, obviously the pandemic's a bad thing and, you know, it's caused so much loss, destruction, every under every horrible thing under the sun. Um, But do you think it's caused any, uh, inadvertently caused any opportunities for ensemble music? I think that if anything, it's greatened our appreciation for ensemble music and something we took for granted before was being able to play in person with people. Um, I also think that I've seen groups get really creative with playing together in ways that we wouldn't have before, you know, playing outside, playing in spaces that we wouldn't normally consider. Um, We have a big parking structure in at our university so we would play in the parking structure because the reverb's great sounds pretty good um and so we would get really creative in ways to get together and play um but overall like it's just great in my appreciation for something that i would like dread sometimes going to wind ensemble every single day and now i'm like wow like if i could have that back you know in a normal sense um so definitely has increased all of our creativity. So um, even it's created some new opportunities with um, virtual classes online and stuff like that, obviously. 
Um, but virtual concerts, virtual, um, you know, promoting ourselves in a way that's completely different and completely new. Because as musicians, we're used to saying, oh, you know, come to my concert and you're playing, but you're playing, you know, by the end of the semester, you're playing like every other day in some sort of concert of some sort. Um, versus in one of my entrepreneurship classes, we actually had to put on a concert, but everything has to be virtual. So, you know, how do you do that? What do you use to keep your audience engaged? Um, and I think it's something really new and exciting in a direction that we can go. And, you know, more than just live streaming a live concert, we're, you know, building my, my group that I worked with, we built a concert um, of diverse music by diverse composers. And we did our video recordings of us playing in places that are non-traditional, so outside the concert hall. So all of my movements were, you know, recorded in a studio, but the video was done outside um, and was done outside in all different places. So I think it's, you know, amped up our creativity, which is always a good thing. Um, and given a more holistic experience to the online concert experience, because it really can be something if we commit to it and make it more than just, oh, here's my concert that we're live streaming. Um, we added, you know, program notes that we all delivered individually and we talked about them. And stuff like that is something that I would have never been like, oh yeah, I'm gonna put on, cause putting on a concert in person is just like, you get together, you play, you show up, some people come and you know, that's it versus there's so much more legwork in this type of stuff. But I think it's also very valuable to our skills as a musician and being a 21st century musician, being able to work with what you have at the time and just make the best of it. So I think opportunities in, you know, really refining our how to, I hate saying like marketing yourself, but how to, you know, keep yourself in the mainstream relevant, still doing stuff that you really enjoy, even despite we can't play in large ensembles like together at the moment. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely, you know, uh, Sean had the wording written down, but he's a, the silver lining to this, right? I mean, I, because I mean, if you focus on only the negatives, I mean, you'll, you'll drive yourself to drink, but um, if you, you know, you can look at it with a positive spin, I, which you certainly, you know, you showed exactly how we can do that because it does increase our, our productivity, our creativity, um, and the appreciation above all, right? I mean, uh, yes, people are a little hypocritical because they say how much we miss it, but then they don't give the support, um, that they should. But regardless, I think the public, you're right, has a much greater, uh, understanding or a much greater appreciation for what they can't experience now um, and even the performers as well. So with that, we will take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit about teaching, which you mentioned a little bit about already. So that was a good, um, a good preview into that section. So before we take a break, if you would be so kind as to read our handles for our listeners. Yes, absolutely. Um, everyone go check out this cool podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Um, at music speaks underscore podcast on Twitter, music speaks underscore podcast on Instagram, just the music speaks podcast on Facebook and one big old line music speaks podcast on TikTok. All right. And we're going to a break.
Okay, and we oh wait. And we are back with Sierra. And the next segment is going to talk more about the teaching aspect of um, your life, I guess. Um, so my first question is, for those who don't know, even without the technology problem, even without the pandemic, what is one of the difficult or some of the difficulties with teaching music? And you so, touched on it a little bit already. Yeah, no, some of the difficulties of teaching music in general well you know the clarinet is not the easiest instrument any you know some kids they want you know they'll be like i really want to play the clarinet and or that i really want to play the trumpet or the flute and they're just not like, like meant to play that instrument like they're meant to play something that is easy for them mm -hmm. um so i think that that's one of the challenges of teaching music is a lot of kids have such like they have this idea of what they want to play and then you know that might not be what they're best suited for. And that's totally okay. Mm -hmm. And I think now, especially teaching music is difficult because we forget about the fact that, you know, people say, Oh, music leads to like higher SAT scores or music makes your kid better at math. But, you know, music itself has intrinsic value and mm -hmm. should be taught as a subject for the intrinsic value and for, you know, students just to enjoy it versus, you know, using it to, you know, keeping it in schools because it makes them better at other things. Um, you know, where's the intrinsic value placed on music itself? Um, and I think that's a big challenge we're seeing in the schools. My undergrad degree was not in education, but I still feel very strongly that, um, you know, I feel very strongly about music education and anybody who teaches in public school, I give them all the credit in the world. I just know that I could never do that personally. Um, I love to teach clarinet individually, public school education, not so much. So I give all those people who, you know, I've watched all my friends suffer through a music education degree and I'm just so happy for them when they get their jobs and they love what they're doing. Um, I give them all the credit for that. You know, I think that's one of the challenges uh, that we're facing, I guess, as a music community in general, and why people say, you know, sometimes that classical music is dying or why people are becoming less interested. Um, that is one of the really big things that I think is super unfortunate, but I think we need to bring back the fact that music has value because it is music, not just because it makes you better at other things. Um, and I think that's super important. And, you know, I was reading an article recently that was talking about how students now are less likely to be motivated to play a musical instrument because they're not it do, musical instruments are very bad at providing instant gratification no <laughs> you don't you, say if you haven't noticed that you don't just like all of a sudden like change one thing and you're amazing at playing music it's a process and it's a journey as we all know because we've made it this far um but i think you know it's really difficult now too where students are especially they're so used to instant gratification and things being coming to them fast and instantly and if you know if it doesn't come to them instantly then they shouldn't do it or they should stop um and that is so anti-music because it is all about you know the journey uh -huh. of being able to go from not being able to put the instrument together to being able to play hot cross buns when you're in fourth grade and then progressing it's just like a lifelong commitment of progress as a musician um and that is very challenging with 
with a lot of students nowadays. They're like, oh, you know, I'm just doing band because I can get an A in it, like high school kids. Um, mm-hmm. So that, you know, and because I've worked in, I've done workshops in high schools and stuff like that. And that's largely the attitude of a lot of students, um, which is sad, but a lot of the students also have the attitude, which I find is great, is I want to keep taking band, even though my guidance counselor is telling me it would be more you know, advantageous for me for a college application to take this level Spanish. I just want to take band because it's one time of the day that I can have fun. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also really important. Um, we don't emphasize in school kids doing stuff they enjoy and having fun. It's all about building that resume to get into a good college. Um, so I think those are some of the things that before even the pandemic, but now even more so, you see just so much more in the forefront that you know, those are the challenges we face as music educators of any level, of any, you know, private lessons, public teachers, everything in between. Mm-hmm. That's You raised an interesting point, which I, I wonder how what the long-term effect of it is going to be, which is we've seen a lot of universities suffer because of the pandemic, and a lot of people are doing the online classes because that's what, you know, that's the only way they can keep it going. It always makes me wonder in the extreme case, you know, is this going to dissuade people from going to college because they find that they're getting as much at home, you know, and this is a problem for public schools that, that we're having, um, which is like people deciding they're getting as much out of it being at home as they are at school, which so, so socially is not true, but um, for at a higher education, from a higher education standpoint, you have kids who are going to, wonder, you know, do I even need to go to this really big university if I can get a quality education without actually going there, not paying room and board, you know, all that kind of, all those kind of factors. And then are they going to be maybe more likely to take classes that are more fun in high school because they're not worried about getting into such higher level universities? So maybe they'd be more inclined to take something like band, even though obviously we know as music educators, as musicians, it does have both intrinsic intrinsic and extrinsic value. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. You raise, I kind of like that you bring that up because sometimes I get into this like mindset of like, oh my gosh, like everything's just going downhill and it's just going to get worse from here. Like students are just not going to see the value in music school after the pandemic. But you know, what you say is, is valuable. And I think that I hope that students are doing more to seek out some fun um, and just something that they generally enjoy doing. I think we don't emphasize that enough. Um, Even in music school, I feel like we get wrapped up in, you know, it's a contest of like, who's got it the worst? Who's got the most work to do? Who's up the latest? Who's got to get up the earliest? Who's got this? Um, And, you know, I don't like to buy into that because a lot of times we make it like, who's got it worse in music school, I find. Um, And I think that's just not a great way to be. And I think in general and in life, you always should find something that's fun and that you enjoy that's not your job, if that makes sense. Um, So, you know, as a young, as a high school student, school is your job, but you're also allowed to do something for fun. So um, that's like for me personally, I like to cook and I like to exercise a lot and I can, that can be a big part of me too. God bless you. I'm not just Sierra the musician, you know, that's not my whole identity. Um, It's, 
I am Sierra and I am also a musician and a runner and a mom to three cats and all of those other good things. And those are just as valuable um, as, you know, being a good student or a musician or whatever it applies, whatever way it applies in your life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose only time will tell exactly what direction that we're headed in. And, you know, knock on wood that uh, 2021 turns out better than than 2020 did. I see a lot of things where it's like, could you believe we toasted 2020 um, at all? So with that in mind, <laughs> with some of the challenges that we do face uh, that we are presented with for the next at least, um, you know, at least half a year, three quarters of a year. Uh, Sean wants to ask you a little bit about some of those challenges, some of which you, you did touch upon earlier. Sure. Um, Sierra, my next question is about dealing with lessons. Um, what is harder to do during a lesson? Is it dealing with technology or is it dealing with the student? So I find it challenging to be dealing with technology personally because um, usually the students come in really wanting to learn and wanting to um, especially at like the college level for the most part they want to learn um, and they want to get the most out of it they can and from a teacher perspective I feel like I can give a certain amount through online and you know I can give them a certain amount of guidance I can give them a certain amount of how to teach musicality, but I just feel like I can't give them everything that I can when I'm in person, if that makes sense. Um, right. I just feel like I like working with them and being in the same room with them and feeling their energy as a teacher. You know, I feel like that can gauge a lot of like which direction you go in versus sometimes when you're staring at the screen, it's like you get just like a nod or, you know, some kids have issues with internet connectivity. Like that's a huge problem. So they can't have their video on and they'll just be, you know, playing, which is, you know, not the same for me. I really like to see their faces and I like to see how they react. I like to watch, um, you know, like I said, feeling their energy, but watching how they respond to my teaching. And it's really hard to do that over a screen. Um, so it's definitely really forced me to, look at my teaching and be extra prepared because sometimes, you know, you see something happening in person, like somebody's posture or their hand position, and you can really run with that and you can make like the whole lesson out of that versus now I have to make sure that I can, I have enough content to fill that whole hour lesson, no matter, you know, what they come in with. And I think that's really challenging. It's also been challenging with class clarinet when I'm teaching I can't walk around the room and provide pointers and ask questions. You know, I'm just staring at a screen and they're all on mute and, you know, I'll ask them to come off occasionally to play, but it's just, uh, requires a lot more planning and a lot more thought beforehand than it did to just be able to go in and teach in person. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you on that. And, uh, hats off to you on that. Cause that is definitely a tough job. Um, uh, Hunter wants to talk to you about monkey wrenches next. I'm not sure in what context. Oh, I see. Stressors. Okay. Um, Hunter, take it away. Yeah, so this is, um, it could be technology related like Sean's, but it also could not be. And again, you, you talked a little bit about it, but what kind of stressors or as he said, serious monkey wrenches has the pandemic thrown at both the teaching profet, like teaching as a profession but really more specifically music teaching profession. And you did talk a little bit about the, the in-person and the emotional response you get from the students, 
but is there anything else you could think of? Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of even if you are playing in person, you're usually wearing instrument PPE and having to be really far apart from people. Um, so like my lessons every week because I'm a master's student, I'm lucky enough that they get to be in person, but we're in a huge classroom and I'm playing, you know, with my teacher and I'm interacting with her, but at the same time, she's very far away. Um, so that's definitely mm-hmm. just something to adjust to in general. But, you know, I just like to be able to be there with my students and kind of experience what they're experiencing. So, like, it's really difficult to get that empathetic thing that I like to use in my teaching when you're doing stuff over over, over Zoom. And, you know, it's also pain planning when you can do stuff in person so like at some points I did do like one in-person class with class clarinet because I figured it would be easier to show them all the chromatic fingerings of the instrument if we were in person which you know it was Uh and then you know when this part came we actually so on last Wednesday Michigan shut down all like indoor dining and all um, high school and colleges had to go remote for the rest of the semester so our college originally we were going to go remote starting um starting this this Monday um and so having to do a week's worth of recordings that I had planned um I had to kind of shove them all into like last Monday so I was in a recording studio until like midnight and it was just all sorts of crazy and wild so you know and also having students who are like yeah sorry like I might have been exposed to COVID or I do have COVID and I can't come to class um you know just it's thrown so many you just get thrown so many curveballs that you never thought you were going to have to you never thought you were gonna have to deal with and me trying to make my class accessible for people and feel like they have the confidence to go teach the clarinet even when you know one of my students he was like I have I have COVID and I can't take the final the playing final I don't want to blow into a school instrument and I was like totally fine (laughs) Um, you know having to adapt to that and I guess if anything, I've become more resourceful and be able to think on the fly and do things on the fly a little bit better. So I think of all things, I can definitely, I can definitely work on the fly because, you know, they'll email you five minutes before class starts, you know, and that's just, that's just how life is these days. So just having to work with that, um, getting used to that. I've definitely gotten, I've definitely gotten better and um, learning not to like, panic too much or you know reflect too much upon yourself as a teacher if your students are having poor internet connection or you know feeling bad um i think it's a lot of it you have to just do your best and know that your students appreciate that and go from there so yeah i think huge as a music as a profession and music teaching especially mm-hmm. yeah it's <laughs> yeah it's certainly a, a learning curve for everyone uh, and one we're not likely to soon forget. Um, and, you know, speaking of learning curve, we've all learned things, right? And I feel like everyone is learning from not only themselves, but each other. And that's something that's, that Sean wants to talk about. Right. Nice curve, Hunter. Thank you. Um, 
what is something that you've learned from someone else that you would like to talk about with tech? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've learned a lot of stuff because I, you know, I did a lot of um, like marketing type stuff on the computer with my work with Acropolis because I was doing that um, internship remotely before, you know, everything kind of became remote for two years. Um, but technology tips, my favorite thing that I've done is gotten, you know, invested in a nice microphone. So I don't absolutely hate the way I sound all the time. So if you play, <laughs> you know, it makes a big difference if you play into a nice microphone and do some technology in terms of, um, I have a blue Yeti microphone and I love it. Um, you know, and there's different microphones mm -hmm. at all different price points. And there's just so many resources on that. I think as a musician, that's valuable in the times of a pandemic and also outside of the pandemic because you have good recording equipment for yourself. I think that's really important. Um, and another thing is there's a lot of free workshops and free stuff that people are putting out online. So I'm like a member of a bunch of clarinet groups on Facebook and you get to see all these events that are going on and now they're virtual. So you can go to so many different things that pique your interest that are all over the country that you normally wouldn't be able to access. So I think also, you know, joining some music Facebook groups and getting in there and getting some links to those types of things has been nice and fun and it gets your mind off of like oh i have to practice my scales today but like no you know i'm going to an entrepreneurship workshop later or you know a chamber music workshop that i get to just sit back and learn from i think that's those have been the two things that i would that i've learned from people that i would like to pass on to everybody to take advantage of those as much as possible well right on uh sierra that was great i really do hope that people do take advantage of that um Again, we are also on Facebook. If you want to follow us there, too, go check us out as well. Um, I do want to throw the next question over to Hunter. Hunter has another question about your classroom. Hunter, take it away. Right. So this is a question that applies not just now, but really any time that you are working with students, whether it's in a classroom or a private setting, um, individual versus group. Uh, and really it could apply to, I guess, you working with peers, not necessarily students, but how do you deal with the variety of skill levels that you work with, right? I mean, it's when, you working, when you're working with a band, I think in the, the layman's thought process, for, for lack of a better word, they assume that everyone in the orchestra or band or ensemble all have the same skill level. They're all up to the same, uh, the same point or peak. How do you address when you have to work with multiple people or one person after another, those different levels? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, you know, I think in a group setting, it's hard, but it's also valuable because for the most part, those students, um, especially in a band, like you're actually only as good as your, as your weakest player. Um, so thinking of ways to boost mm -hmm. that person up rather than, okay, let's just put, you know, your best people on the best, on the highest parts per se in band and, you know, kind of burying those other students in their parts. 
you know, what can you do to lift them up? And I think it's really valuable and this doesn't often happen, but like take your best player and yep, you have them on the first part, but also take one of your weaker players and have them on the first part and pair them right next to that person to see what they can learn from them. Um, Often in band scenarios, especially with clarinet auditions, you know, they'll have the list and the list from highest audition to the lowest. And they'll, you know, the top, however many are first clarinet, second clarinet, third clarinet. Well, you know, I think we lose being able to learn from your peers if you, you know, yeah, put the best person on first clarinet and then pair them with somebody weaker and then put another strong player on second clarinet and pair them with somebody weaker and same with with third clarinet. That way you get that full range of, first of all, you'll get the depth of all the parts coming through and then people will be able to learn from their peers. I'm a huge person who learns by listening. If I hear something, I'm like, 10 times more likely to play it and if I just look at it on the page and you know I just am a huge like auditory learner when it comes to music and I think that being able to have that for students and you know if they see that and they hear their peers playing that they'll be like oh you know I hear it now I understand it I can play it I think that's something really valuable that doesn't often happen or even like cross the minds of band directors in school especially if you haven't played the clarinet it's really like an oddly clarinet specific thing um, but I think in general, the mm-hmm. whole seating order thing could be really revamped so that way students are learning from each other rather than just the people in the back or the people at the end of the row are struggling. Um, and I think it's a big challenge to try to address if you have somebody who's really at a high level um, and then people who are you know, not quite at that level yet, um, but encouraging the person at a higher level to teach their peers because and not in obviously in a derogatory way but you can talk to them and say hey here are some ways that you can teach your peers and I know personally that through teaching you become a better player because if you can explain to someone else how to do it then you're more likely to be able to do it yourself I find more about my personal playing through teaching than I do just through sitting down and practicing So I think, you know, that also helps with the collaborative effort when you have students playing together. Um, And I love teaching independence of parts when I have like a group lesson to have like, you know, to have a clarinet quartet and, you know, throw them all the parts, have them play it, listen to, you know, be independent, then swap them all around, have them play different parts. I think that's something that you can do with clarinet players. That's super awesome. But yeah, so that's my biggest thing with teaching in you know, in the public setting and trying to really get all your students at the most like homogenous level possible. You're always going to have, you know, people who stand out, but have them use that um, to like heighten their experience too. They don't have to be bored all the time. They can also be helping with stuff. So I think that's important. I I did that in high school a lot and my band teacher really did a lot of that with me. So I think that's super important and something we often forget about. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I know it, it, that's a struggle with all, with really teaching in general, um, or, or let's really struggle with anything that you're going to have people with different skill levels at, because if you're in a, a band or, um, a, a smaller ensemble or a large orchestra, you will have that disparity between the skill levels and the idea is how can you get as much out of the orchestra as possible? And if you do see the um, maybe less skilled person at that time with a higher skilled person, they can benefit off of it. And it might seem discouraging at first to them, but 
you know, you, you hope that they try to rise to that occasion. And I know that it's something we do. I, I'm a, both a music and a language teacher. I have a degree in Italian and music. So when I was doing my student teaching for Italian, I know one of the, not tricks, but one of the, what do you call it? Yeah, I'll just call it a trick. That we would do is in the classroom, we had people seated in pairs and you'd always see someone with close averages together, but you'd always make sure that one was a couple points higher than the other in the hopes that that person would help the other person learn a little bit better. So that's sort of the trick of how you do like seating in classrooms. In band, it sort of is the same. And like you said, I have noticed it does happen among clarinetists quite a bit. I don't know why that yeah. is. I don't, yeah, I don't know either. I, I always wonder, I'm like, why would you, especially some, you know, newer pieces of music have like four clarinet parts, four plus clarinet parts. Like, no, you need a strong player on every part. So, mm -hmm. you know, you might as well stack them up right. in your favor. Right. And I think that's another misconception people have. They think they see first, second, third clarinet, and they think best clarinetist, okay clarinetist, bad clarinetist or whatever instrument it happens to be. And you're like, well, not not quite. Like they, the, you know, those are harmonic parts. They, without them, the piece doesn't sound the same. So you have to have a skilled enough player on each one. Maybe the third is more suited to someone with a lower skill level, but that doesn't necessarily mean it can be a neglected part. So, and, may, and you know, if you can get the students to understand that, maybe they take the third part a little bit more seriously because they think they see I'm playing third. They're like, oh, well, he knows I'm not good, so. Or she. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Especially, especially in a smaller ensemble, like you said, where there are so many parts. Everyone has a role to play. Exactly. So with... Yeah, I, sorry, there was a lag. I couldn't tell if you. I couldn't tell if you were like waiting to hear the rest of it, or if you were done. I don't know. Um, so with that, we are going to move into our final segment, which is our little clarinet excerpt quiz, which I know you are very excited about. Excited and a little nervous. <laughs> both are good things. They're both good motivation. So we will take a quick break and then we'll be right back. All right, and we are back with Sierra and her clarinet quiz, right? Little excerpts from famous clarinet pieces, or rather pieces that feature the clarinet. Um, are you ready, Sierra? I am ready. All right, so here we go. Here's the first one. Thank you. 
All right. So any idea? Uh, yeah, definitely something romantic. Um, oh, God. I've never played that one myself, I must admit. Um, hmm. It's not one of the Brahms ones I'm used to hearing. My other thought? Hmm. I might need a hint on this one. This one's difficult. I don't... I'm not horribly familiar with this one. You guys are tough on this clarinet quizzes. <laughs> All right. So, um, hint, let's see, what would be a good hint? Maybe, um, here's a, here's a hint, Sierra. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a song that this composer wrote that's about, um, about a young boy getting chased by a dark elf. Okay, that I do know that, um, okay. I just need a second because Mark Radice's, um Music History 3 did not fail me. I do know that's the Earl Kong, I'm pretty sure. Oh, so it must be from Schubert then. It is from Schubert, very nice. Any idea what the work is? Oh gosh, probably. Uh, I feel like they call for the for Schubert unfinished a lot, but so I believe it's from Schubert's unfinished symphony. There, you would believe correctly. Great! Wow, that was that was that was a little stressful, but I'm glad I got it. I was like, I know it's it's very romantic sounding, but it is very romantic sounding. You would be correct. All right, and now we have excerpt number due. All right. And for that, are you ready? I am. All right. I guess it was just a a quick clarinet riff. I was gonna say that was quite the quite the little riff there. I blame Sean. <laughs> These were Sean's choices, huh? Hmm, I could tell. So, ugh. the only thing that I'm familiar with that goes up that high is Hina Stara variations, but I don't know if it, that is it or not. So. Whoops, I hit it again by accident. Um, not quite. Would you like is, another, still, go ahead. Would you like another hint, Sierra? Yes, I would love another hint. These are hard, so, <laughs> so you're aware. Um, another title for this is Merry Pranks. Interesting. Yeah, this one I'm going to have to pass on. I really have no idea. He's uber German. Actually, he might have been Austrian now that I think about it. 
Yeah, I think he might be Austrian too. Um, same name as the Waltz King. <laughs> uh, so Franz something. Uh, yeah, I really, I don't know. It is Strauss. Strauss. All right, well. Till Eulenspiegel. Okay, yep. Does that make Sounds sense? Sounds familiar now, yeah. No, okay. yeah. Okay, cool. All right, now number three. Ready, set, go. have played and I am trying to think of which one it is because I have played that one for sure. I've definitely studied it. Um, I want to say it's Beethoven. Is it not Beethoven? Right first letter. Brahms. Still right first letter. <laughs> this is so bad. Um, keep moving, keep moving west on the map. Fondue and and hunchbacks and <laughs> giant cathedrals. Yes, this is this is killing me because it I indeed have have played this one. Um This is a five movement work. Is it Berlioz? It is. It is Berlioz. Very nice. Any Symphony. idea when Oh go ahead. Symphony um, Fantastique. Yeah, I was gonna say okay, I'm assuming it has to be from Symphony Fantastique, because that's usually all they call for in Berlioz, so yeah. <laughs> All right, so you have Berlioz. Berlioz is a fun guy. Well, I don't know, maybe he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right. Hang on. Next one. Number four. Helps if it's not muted when I play it. No, I don't want to go to YouTube. I just want to play it right here. We've jumped forward in time. We've jumped forward in time. Okay, good to know. That's very helpful. Yeah, I'm gonna need a hint on this one too, guys. You're you're real tough with your clarinet expression. Okay? <laughs> Think Italy. Think Italy and Fantasia 2000. Italy and Fantasia 2000, okay. Um, God, Rossini has to do with no, you're getting there, getting close, has to do with trees in the city. Okay, all right. Um, well, that's a very interesting way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> Trees in a city. Trees in a, an Italian city. Hmm. Let me... Okay, so I'm going to maybe think when we're saying Italian city, maybe we're talking about Venice. We, no. could, we could be talking more about maybe Rome, maybe? Oh, yeah, that's really obvious now that you say that. That'd probably be Pines of Rome, I'm guessing, right? That is correct. By? Written by. Oh, um, Respighi, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I was going to say, that, that. Uh. <laughs> that would be who that is. All right. Hunter, you ready for number five? Wasn't that number five? Oh, no, that was number four. This is number five. Here we go. Here's number five. Here is numero cinque. Ready? Here we go. Go for it.
Okay, that was a longer excerpt. Yes, that one I that one is Galanta Dances. Kodai. It, it is very good. Yeah, that one's one of my favorites. <laughs> you knew that one right off the bat. Yeah. <laughs> that one I heard at the beginning. I was like, oh, I know this one. Thank God. <laughs> I've heard you play that one before, Sierra. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was picking the I picked the right one there. All right, Hunter, we have one more for Sierra. Even the toughest one of all. I'll help you get this one, Sierra. Oh god. Um prepare your mind for this one. Hunter, <laughs> take it away. Ready? That's some good old Rhapsody in Blue. Gershwin. Need I even play anymore? I know, yeah. People, that's the most commonly asked question is I get, it is can indeed. you play that? I get that I ask that a lot. Can you play that? The answer is actually <laughs> I have gotten that too. I can do the glissando, but yeah. So that's always a good one. But yeah, that's you threw me some real curveballs with that. So good for you. I know you're probably like, a clarinet player would pick totally different ones. Like you're not throwing me any Beethoven six, no Mendelssohn. Like no, that's too easy. So, kudos too, to you. Too easy. Too easy. <laughs> that's his. See, because he's getting his doctorate, he thinks he is. I just think I don't know. Sierra, it is so. Mr. Collegiate. Is, I know, Mr. Mr. Collegiate. Um. Sierra, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure to catch up with you. Um, we hope you come back and take a better, easier quiz or maybe a harder quiz. I don't know. Um, please do come back. I mean, that would be great for us uh, to have you come back because you had a lot of really great things to say about music and about practicing and about working within the the limits of the pandemic. So um, I really do. I'm really happy to have you here. I, I said to Hunter before you came on, that you are one of the hardest working musician I, that I know that worked really hard to get where she wants to go. And I'm really happy that you were able to share with us your experience from going from one place to another with a very strong amount of gusto. So I'm really happy that we were able to sit down and talk today. Um, I will sort of shoot this next one over to Hunter, um, but thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, that's always what I want to be looked at is like I didn't just like wasn't randomly talented, but I worked hard. So I, I really appreciate that. And I've had a ton of fun talking to you guys and I'd be more than happy to come back at some point and probably redeem myself. But maybe we can do <laughs> read Quintet music next time. <laughs> Absolutely. Ah, Yeah, I want to thank you as well. Obviously, I didn't know you. So it was a pleasure to get to meet you. Always also nice to talk to a fellow clarinetist. Um, yeah, you can come back and we can do like, uh, you know, we do a 10 songs thing where you pick your favorite, ten, your top 10 songs, top impactful songs, and you get to talk about them or another deep dive into something of your choosing. So that would be fun too. So thank you. Thank you guys. I really had a great time. And anytime you want me back, I, I'll make time for it. It's been a good, it's been a good time. All right. See you, Sierra. 
Bye. Thanks, Sierra. And we'll see you next time on Music Speaks. As you know, my name is Sean Rancunas. And I'm Hunter Sagona. And I didn't have to think about it this time. And keep listening to what you love.